You're listening to The Grind, well-caffeinated conversations with disc golfers who are passionate about improving their games and helping others to do the same. Welcome to episode 13 of The Grind, a disc golf podcast. I'm Josiah, with me, my good friend David. We're going to talk some disc golf. How's it going, guys? We have a fun episode lined up for you today. We have pro tip from Scott Stokely. We are going to talk about putting in the wind, the challenges, solutions maybe, and we are going to review the glorious Kastaplasberg. No spoiler there. Well, maybe a little bit, but as always, David, got to ask, what are you sipping on and how was your disc golf week? For a second there, I thought you were saying we're reviewing the glory disc, and I in my brain, I'm just trying to think about, wait, what disc? <laughs> you didn't, you I didn't don't review the glory? Th- I don't remember throwing that. You were supposed to throw the glory <laughs> this week, David. Oh, <laughs> man. We're sipping on some Ethiopia Guji again this week from, looks like, uh, Uraga in Ethiopia. Um, I, the, I assume that that's going to be uh, the little village within the Guji region. I'm not sure. I didn't do the research. Again, natural processed coffee. It's kind of fun. When you go to a craft coffee shop, typically people that are super nerdy and really into their and that, that really into their their coffees, typically the Ethiopia Guji Natural is kind of that like standard baseline. Like when you're going to a craft brewery and you're um I guess the baseline before was I would say was the IPA. But now maybe it's the hazy IPA that yeah, people are really looking true. for. But this is kind of like your hazy IPA of the the coffee industry, the craft coffee industry. And so it's one that kind of everybody's looking for as far as a baseline for experimental coffees. Yeah, uh, kind of get like your take on the hazy if you're going to a bar. You know, yeah. like, oh, this is good. It's different than I expected. Yeah. Or this is like really classic. Or, yeah. oh, it's a little bit more West Coast. Yep, for sure. But this yeah. with coffee. So who's the this roaster is, on this? The, the roaster is Harbinger Coffee. And Harbinger Coffee is out of Fort Collins, Colorado. This is actually, I kind of have a list of like five roasters in Colorado that I typically go to when i'm talking about colorado roasters as far as top five for me and harbinger is one of those roasters that i typically go to owner's name is john fantastic people serving fantastic coffees across the board they have definitely very high standards and man this is a fun cup it's a as far as a lot of ethiopia gujis i mean typically you're gonna those naturals you're gonna get those berry notes this yeah, is well, I, when i think about guji i think blueberry yeah this is a very clean cup you're getting a lot more of the strawberry notes in there. That's one of the notes on there. Definitely, that's something that sticks it out. It pops, for sure. I get the graham cracker because it kind of has that like almost like a sweet, buttery taste Yeah, along with it. It's a good cut, man. This is honestly probably one of the one of my favorite Gujis that I've had. So, Yeah, I really get the strawberry. I don't think that I've had a coffee where I've gotten a strawberry on my palate quite like that. I definitely, I can see the graham cracker as well. When you say a clean cup, Sometimes people say that and I'm like, oh, I don't really know. But this leaves you with almost no bitterness or acidity at the end. I mean, there's a little bit of acidity for sure that lingers, but uh, it's not like a sour taste. And I don't know, it feels very easy to drink and almost like you're not drinking coffee. If you think about like a classic, you know, medium or dark roast coffee, you kind of have this mouth feel that lingers that's not super pleasant. Yep. And this, this is just... I hate to use the word in the definition or my poor layman's definition, but this is clean. It's like, yeah. it's great. Yeah. I mean, that's a great de- definition. I, I don't, I use clean cup often. I don't realize that like 
as far as it's not the most approachable term as far as like communicating. And I feel like you broke that down really well. It's really just, I feel like you can identify a lot of what the flavor uh, flavors within the coffee, the compounds that are there, but um, there's not a whole lot of other variables, the acidity uh, being, whether it's under roasted, over roasted that are prominent and that are going to stick out. It just is a fantastic cup of coffee. Did a fantastic job guys. Yeah, and I think the great thing about it is that it's both really flavorful and clean. I think that's a tough thing because normally I would imagine with the mouthfeel I have at the end that you'd have a weak or like uneventful experience in the actual you know, when you're actually drinking the coffee. But it's like, no, it's loaded with flavor and then it, you feel nice afterwards. Yep, and that's something that you find in a lot of the natural coffees. They'll typically have some of those like more gassy uh, petroleum taste along with the fun fruitiness going on. And uh, with this coffee, you're not really getting that at all. It has definitely has that clean taste. Yeah, it's a great cup. You should definitely check this out. You can order online from them at harbingercoffee.com. It's a fantastic roast, a uh, fantastic bean, and we really appreciate them. They sent us a couple bags to try. And so we're going to have a Columbia from them on the podcast as well down the road. So big thanks to John. And we appreciate you yeah how was your disc golf week dude disc golf week was good kind of i ended up playing salt wash on sunday i'm so jealous you have salt wash in your backyard i know it, it is really nice just to be able to walk back there especially this time of year and the evening times during the summer is a lot of fun salt wash is fun working on kind of shorter technical shots basically every time i go out there i'm really trying to shoot nine down there's nine holes and so I'm trying to I'm trying to get them all. The best I've ever gotten is seven. I had a chance uh, one time at nine, <laughs> but I missed two like eighteen foot putts. Well, <laughs> two foot putts. Well, we won't. One, yeah, we know that our buddy Ryan listens to this podcast, not Ryan Wilking, but and he did throw you off a bit, and he's never going to forgive himself for never it, and he shouldn't. <laughs> but that would have just been eight down. But uh, man, fun week, man feel like I got to work on a lot of my technical shots with backhand trying to hit those lines through the trees at salt wash. And then on Thursday, I talked about in the uh, second cup, got to play around in the wind on Thursday. And I went out uh, with the approach at Snooks of not wanting to go for my best score, but I went out with the approach of just wanting to really learn different shots in the wind and understand what I can do in the wind. That's something I'm really trying to continue to build those concepts in my head so I can go into a tournament feeling confident, even if it's really windy. And I feel like I, I walked, I threw about three to four drives on every hole. And uh, that's really what I focused on. And I also, I did two putts per hole as well to make sure that I was figuring out what I wanted to do with my putting in the wind as well. Yeah. And I'm excited about talking to you about putting in the wind because I feel like it's still an area of weakness for me. Oh yeah. Still, I feel like, for amateurs, it's going to continue to be an area of weakness. It's something that is so necessary to work on and so necessary to talk about because we, uh, the more that you talk about it, the more that you build those concepts into your head. But yeah, man, a lot of fun. I feel like I, I grew a lot as a player this week. I didn't necessarily have great rounds, but I feel like I, I was able to focus on just, just kind of growing as a player. Yeah. Well, I think it is a great round when you get better, even if you don't score well. Yeah, for sure. But David's still working around to that <laughs> concept. He still wants to beat my best score at Watson anytime he goes out One there. One day. You'll get there. 
but then I'll, I'll, I'll beat it again. It was a good week overall. I actually only played disc golf today. It was my first time this week playing. Um, between being sick and coming off the tournament last week and having in-laws in town and trying to get my taxes done. And honestly, just, just it's been windy and just started to get nice. And I was just like, eh, I've got other things going on. I think sometimes it's really helpful for me to take a little step back. And that way... I don't get too burnt out because I am very obsessive. But what will happen as an obsessive person is I'll get super into something and then I'll ruin it for myself with my obsession. So it was kind of nice to take a little bit of time off. And now I'm super stoked to be playing again. I got to play most of a round today, played a few holes with your brother, John, and then had the kids with me and they revolted about hole 11. So we called it good and went to the playground, but felt really good about my drives. Uh, staying on the second cup, I think that I'm throwing as far as I ever have with less effort than I ever have on the backhand. And so that feels really good and really fun. And I'm excited to see, you know, as I build that in and start to feel more control with it, trying to go for some bigger distance shots. But I feel feel good about the, the backhand and, and pretty good about the forehand as well. And my putting was just a little bit off today, but it's kind of to be expected when you don't play for two weeks. It felt fine. It felt clean. It just wasn't quite on target but but yeah it's been a good good week overall and good disc golf day since i didn't play the rest of the week well you want to get into a pro tip let's do it big thanks to scott stokely for sending us his pro tip scott's story is well documented at this point but um, longtime pro disc golfer who went back on tour this year and he i asked him Scott, what's one thing that keeps AMs and lower-level open players from leveling up their games? And he said, having a dominant throw. You should not be backhand dominant or sidearm dominant. You should be 50-50. It's not about backhand and sidearm. It's about throwing the disc with both spins because each spin gives the disc a mirror image flight from the other. On most shots, one of those flights is more likely to succeed than the other. The hole should determine which delivery you throw with, not you. I choose this because it's one of my largest flaws in my own game. I've always trained equally with both arms and used both with one exception. When I'm in the woods, I do favor the sidearm because it's more accurate. This is correct for me scoring the best because I avoid missing gaps in the woods, but I do this to compensate for a lack of precision with my backhand accuracy. So it is a flaw in my game. It holds me back. And I felt like that was a really cool and honest tip from him and kind of an interesting concept to talk about because you're naturally sidearm or forehand dominant. I'm naturally backhand dominant. What do you think about Scott's pro tip? I like it in the sense that early on, I mean, the whole reason that I became sidearm dominant was because at the beginning I could throw about 300 feet with my forehand. I could only throw 200 feet to 215 feet with my backhand because I really didn't have a concept for it. And so naturally, I wanted the most distance, and so I just stuck with my forehand. So this is what I'm getting the most distance. I'm going to figure this out, and that's what I'm going to roll with. And I became so committed to it that I did get really good at the forehand and really consistent in finding that consistency, but neglected it so much to the point to where, I mean, it's been about three years now that we've been playing regularly. Yeah, I think together we've been playing three years consistently. Yeah. yeah. It's only in this past, like, what, six to eight months that I've really started to figure out a backhand. So it took me a lot of time to, and I'm still 
Like as far as my confidence with my backhand, it's definitely getting up there, but it's not still nowhere near where my forehand is. And so I think if I would have had this concept earlier on in playing and known that, okay, it's not about the distance. It's about understanding what you need the disc to do. I think if I had that those concepts built in earlier on, I wouldn't have been so consumed about, I want to throw further than all my friends. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think this is interesting. And I definitely think that when you lack a tool, it really hurts you. And you were talking about in the second cup just how having a backhand now makes playing in the wind so much easier. Oh, yeah. You want to kind of expand on that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, having a beforehand when i was so reliant on the forehand playing in the wind it got to the point to where i half the time felt like i didn't even have a shot because the wind was going to do so much damage to the way that the wind was coming at the disc that it wasn't going to fight the wind or do in the wind what i wanted it to do and now knowing that i can adjust and use a backhand with a different spin and having the flight plate on the other side of the wind it's it gives you, it opens up a realm of possibilities of what you can do in the wind, which is a complete game changer. When you feel like you are playing the wind, the wind's not playing you. Yeah. So that's a great, I love that line. That's a great <laughs> way of looking at it. Yeah. I think it's been big for me to have a forehand. I think at our last tournament, I would say over half of my birdies were uh, forehand or sidearm. And that's because some of the shorter holes, that's what's required, but it was also windy. And so, it was nice having that for me inside 300. I feel really confident with my forehand outside that I kind of need to throw a bit of a flex. And so it depends on the line. You know, I feel like I can get my forehand out to like 350, 325 consistency with occasional like 375 plus. That's usually got to be on a flex. But I think inside 300, I feel really confident with my forehand. And I think it makes life so much easier when you don't have to throw something against its natural tendency. So the disc has a natural tendency if you throw backhand right-handed you're going to throw it with what is that clockwise spin Mm -hmm. it's going to fade left forehand or left-handed backhand counterclockwise spin so i think it makes total sense i think the hard thing for me is you only have so much time and when it comes down to it there's some shots that are either neutral to what disc to throw or sorry what line to throw backhand or forehand or the difference is not, it's not, you know, like a 70 30 chance. It's like a 55 45 backhand forehand. And so then it's kind of a matter of if I'm way better than you at the backhand, you're whatever, way better than me at the forehand, but you've got a, you've got a decent backhand. I've got no forehand, whatever that is. On some courses, it won't matter that much because a lot of the holes, I can just throw a backhand every time then there's some courses that it's going to matter a ton. And, you know, Scott's talking about playing the woods. I feel like the woods and the wind is a big part of it. But I think there's this tension between, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's this tension between working on what you're good at and working on your weaknesses. And I feel like this is almost, we've gotten a couple pro tips, James Proctor being one that said, hey, look, I wish I would have started on the forehand earlier because I'm backhand dominant. Scott's saying, hey, I wish I would be, I was more confident in the backhand, been building my backhand more um, because I'm a little too sidearm dominant. And so that's from both sides. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling here, but I think there's this, there's this tension to me between building those skills you're weak at versus honing the thing that you're naturally better at. And, you know, Scott's a great player and he's been around for a long time. He knows a lot of things 
And so I, I want to take him at his word for it, but I also just naturally imagine that there's some balance between building your strengths and honing your weaknesses. And I don't know. What do you think about that? I think there's definitely a balance. I mean, it, it, that's kind of going from the pro to amateur thing as far as the pros. I mean, you're devoting your life, you're devoting your time to be honing your craft. And so you have the time to put that energy into it. I think as an amateur, when we're balancing our, not only our work life, but our home life with our family and we're getting around in once a week or whatever it might be, it's a lot more difficult to um, hone all those different skills because we don't necessarily have the time to do that. And so I think it really comes down to what you feel like you want out of your game. Like going back to um, earlier on talking about like, what is it for you having fun? If it's fun for you just to go out and continue to hone that craft of throwing your backhand because you just enjoy playing your home courses and whatever it might be. And that's what you rely on. I mean, by all means, but I mean, if you're, if you really enjoy and enjoy getting better in the challenge of learning different skill sets within the game, um, I think you can get um, some people, for some people, it's going to be really fun just to keep that simple mindset. Other people, it might you might get bored with the simplicity of that, and you want to expand your game, uh, expand different concepts. And so I think really it comes down to the individual and what you want out of disc golf. Yeah, and I think we're kind of in that middle. Like For me, I, I feel like I do have a lot more time oftentimes to go out and get rounds in. And so I've really enjoyed lately playing more rounds of learning different concepts of before... I would just push them aside because of like I don't actually really care about that. But now that I've gotten into playing tournaments more so and competing in advanced, I definitely have gotten more, okay, I want to compete at the top level in advanced. <laughs> and so if I want to compete there, then I have to understand these other concepts. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to compete with these guys. Yeah, I like that a lot. I have a guy that I work with who plays disc golf quite a bit, and he literally just plays with whatever disc he found that didn't have a name on it. And then if he finds another one, he'll try that one and see if it replaces it. So he'll throw, he'll basically play with like two or three discs, but he'll basically throw one the whole time because it's the disc he's jam- grooving with or whatever. You know, and I carry 24, 25 discs on a casual round most days, you know. So I do think there's a certain degree of, hey, you have to find what level of interest you have in building your game and where you find your enjoyment. But if you said, hey, I just want to get better and my horizon for getting better is 10 years or something long, because I'd say if your horizon for getting better is like two months, then I probably wouldn't try to build a whole new skill set. Then I'd say, yeah, it makes sense to do both. I think the other thing with the forehand and the backhand, I think this is true about the overhand as well, especially, is the longevity. And I think a lot of pros are moving to more backhand dominant perspectives like i've heard Macbeth talk about it and you you have eagle with his injury he's only throwing backhand because of the injury i think there is something mechanically gentler on your body with the backhand that seems to be pretty consistently demonstrated and so i do think there is some degree of maybe i mean scott's scott's you know certainly not 20 and he's doing fine with forehand dominant and you know he's playing well and he's healthy but i do wonder if there is also a certain degree to which you know you're kind of putting yourself more of a baseball pitcher than a batter and the longevity if you're throwing 12 forehand bombs a day at a tournament and more in practice i don't know there's just something physically there that i think we don't know disc golf so young we don't really know enough about the mechanics of it and the long-term implications of injury and such yeah i 
I think for me with the forehand, the temptation is to rip on your forehand. I've been ripping a lot on the forehand with uh, Nate Sexton Firebird. Shout out to Nate Sexton. Yeah, Nate, since you listen every week, send us a pro tip, man. We got Firebirds to review (laughs) and give away. The control that I get with the Firebird is so much so that if I can use it, I want to use it. And so I've been recently pumping it out to about 330, but I am ripping on it. And I just started noticing I every once in a while I get in the bad habit of ripping on the disc more than actually having good mechanics. I start noticing not necessarily a a pain, but like a discomfort in my elbow, which I assume is going to lead to some pain and um, not good things later on. And so that's when I, that's, I've been a little bit more conscious lately of slowing down and being okay with not trying to, because it's, it's easier when you know you can just rip on the disc and it's going to do what you want it to do. The temptation is to rip on it, and I think which leads to those elbow injuries. You just need to go play some more C-level disc golf to remind you to be a little smoother yeah. and ca- more casual off the tee. For sure. I think David's just got such a, a powerful um, and clean forehand that he can, you can put an overstable disc out pretty far and that's very reliable and consistent rather than taking something that's more neutral but i do think that that does like you said require a lot more from your body and when you're playing three and four shots on a course you know and you're doing spike hyzer flat top firebirds or whatever or throwing a wraith on a spike hyzer on a 200 foot hole so you can avoid throwing the backhand turnover (laughs) uh (laughs) yeah so i do think there's some longevity concerns my thing i think the big thing for me that I think I would take from this is you want to not have a weakness. And if sometimes by working on that, you can turn a weakness into a strength. Like I think for the intermediate field, my forehand is good to great and it's my secondary skill. And I think that if I worked on it a bit more, I feel like I'd have an advanced level forehand to go with what I think is, you know, on a good day is an advanced level backhand, you know, and I think that that's worth pursuing for me. I still think practically for me, it's going to depend a lot on how I'm feeling about either those uh, skills or tools. Like last year, I leaned on the forehand because my backhand was a mess. And this year, I feel like, no, my backhand feels really good. And so I'm more likely to lean on that. But I think I right now I feel like I don't have to force throws on the backhand. I do for fun on second shots. I've got the uh, <laughs> the axiom paradox, which if uh, we'll probably review at some point. It's so stupid flippy. It's so fun to throw like a hyzer flip that basically takes a forehand line on the backhand. But on in reality, it's much better for me to throw a forehand in that that instance because it's more reliable with a more stable disc. And so that's what I'm that's what I'm doing. I think that. You know, I really appreciate that Scott's willing to just be like, hey, this is something for me that's personal and that I'm working on. He didn't pick a pro tip that was like, here's something, here's the reason that I'm way better than all you guys. It's like, here's something that, that I'm working on. And I love, he finished off what he sent with this. He said, to this day, I'm always trying to improve my backhand accuracy to become as good as my sidearm. But so far, it hasn't caught up. Maybe when I'm 53, I will. And I love that perspective. And I want to be like this, you know, throughout our lives. You know, we're not in our 20s anymore, but we still are pretty close to our athletic peak. But this idea of like constantly improving is one of the reasons that disc golf, I just can't get enough of it. 
I probably will never beat Paul Macbeth in a round. I might take the box from him a few times, you know, but I'll probably never beat him in a round. Um, but I do think there is this idea of just the the mental health and just the you know physical enjoyment of like working on something and getting better at something for me is one of the things I love about disc golf. And I feel like it's cool to see somebody like Scott who's not satisfied with his game and he's going to keep working on it. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, you want to talk putting in the wind? Let's do it. I think that if I could make 25-foot like ripping headwind putts every time, I'd probably give up circle two putts altogether. <laughs> because I feel like when I get to that 20 to 25 footer in the headwind, I feel like I have such a hard time. And I want to kind of talk through putting in the wind and just kind of some things that are work, work for us and some things that we're trying and just some mental side as well. Like how do you approach it? Because sometimes I honestly, I, I don't have the confidence that I should. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something both that we're, really trying to figure out this last tournament in Delta was one of the first times in a tournament that I really had to focus on uh, putting in the wind and actually having a couple holes that found some success. And both times were actually on comebacker putts just to save my par. Uh, There was two that I made when it was pretty dang windy, either a crosswind putt or a headwind putt from about like between that 22 to 25 range. And the one thing that I feel like helps me out the most is going back. Cause I feel like when the wind is a variable, all the things that you revert back to start seeping into your head. And one of those things for me is babying the putt. Mm -hmm. I'm so nervous about the wind that I try to guide the disc to the basket. And so I just kind of baby it. And then when I don't put enough spin on the disc, the wind just has a heyday <laughs> with the putt and you name it wherever it went it is further away from the basket than where i started from when i'm actually focusing on finishing at the basket and really pushing and getting that spin directly towards the basket i'm showing josiah the motion <laughs> you guys it's beautiful I almost punched him <laughs> but uh when i'm focused on that getting back to okay i really need to make sure that i'm getting the spin on the disc and snapping at the basket And then on top of that, thinking about which angle I want to put it on, that's when I think I'm actually finding the success. And the reason why on those two holes that I think I made the comebacker putts is because I made the mistake on the first putt and I adjusted on the second putt. I I had that happen to me in round as well. And they were like, you were really angry at the basket. I was like, no, I just wanted to follow through. Yeah, It's cool because what you're saying is basically like, do the thing you normally do, just more. Yeah. I think it's just a, the wind becomes a distraction yeah. in your mind. And I think when we have distractions in our life, we naturally get distracted from the fundamentals or what we we know we're capable of doing. Yep. And yeah, the wind's going to impact the disc, but that doesn't mean you cannot make it in the basket. Yeah. I think that's so good. And I think that's why, once again, our buddy Calvin Heimberg says, hey, there is no wind. And I think it is this mental decision of, I'm going to, obviously he practices in the wind, his, but he's going to make a decision about how he's going to putt, and then he's going to putt as if there is no wind. And I think that that is, to me, when I have the most success, is when before I get, and uh, we've got an AMS Helping AM 
uh, part here that we're going to talk through that's going to talk about this. But before I get to my marker, I've already kind of worked out, hey, it's, it's going to be a headwind putt. And so then I'm going to commit to it. Whatever the putt is, I'm going to commit to it. Now, that doesn't mean it's always going to go in. Sometimes that it's going to be disastrous because the wind's going to pick it up and throw it 40 long or something. But in general, I feel like when I get really messed up in the wind is when I walk up to the putt, I get ready to putt, and then I start thinking about the wind. And then when I'm thinking about the wind, like you said, I'm not thinking about that one chain link I want to hit. I'm not visualizing the putt going into the basket. So I think that's that's huge on the mental side. What about on the physical side? Let's talk. So we'll talk headwind because that's the one that bothers me the most. Normally, most people's putts are going to rise in a headwind, drop in a tailwind. That's assuming that you putt nose up. If you putt nose down, especially if you spin putt nose down, you're not going to see that. So if sometimes my spin putt gets nose down, I have to, uh, you'll see it hit, you know, like the very bottom of the pole or, or like not even get to the basket because the wind just takes it. So what's your... Let's start headwind. What's your general like physical approach to it? My gen- the way that I generally putt is I have a slight natural hyzer to my release. And I, when I'm putting in the wind, I actually go away from that slight hyzer. You try to have I, it flat. I try to keep it as flat as possible. And I actually practice putting at home. Also with my, I practice putting with my hyzer putt, but then I also practice at home. So I have that feeling of just putting it straight to the basket. It's not as consistently reliable as the hyzer for me. Putting it flat to the basket, I feel like having that concept in my head has helped me feel more comfortable when there is wind putting flat to the basket. I think um, that's so good too if you have any crosswind element to that headwind yep. putt because a crosswind on the hyzer, if it's coming under your disc, is going to push it way left. Mm-hmm. If it's coming the, from the other direction, it's going to push it on the top of this, push it way down. Yep. So I do think that flat putt makes a lot of sense. Yep. And so typically in the headwind, my, if I'm keeping it pretty flat, and sometimes I do go nose down, it just slaps it to the ground. But I do try to keep it flat, and I try to aim towards the bottom of the basket. I don't aim at the bin itself. I aim just um, just above it, so I'm not trying to hit the center chains because I, I am expecting it to rise some. But I am hoping that I'm going to throw it flat enough to where it's not going to be impacted significantly by that. Yeah. But knowing that more than likely I'm going to air on one side or the other i like the idea of still aiming at something in the basket for the headwind putts because i think if you aim at the cage and then you hit the cage that's so annoying (laughs) you know like so frustrating i'd rather aim at the at the center of the basket and go over the basket than aim at the cage and hit the cage i don't know if that's just my mental side but i think that i agree on the keeping the disc really flat i think both nose angle and wing angle just trying to keep it super neutral. And then I think you said this earlier, but just trying to have clean spin on the putt. And I think spin, spin, especially in the headwind and crosswind, really protects the disc from getting affected. When you have a wobbly putt, the wind will just have its way with it most of the time, unless you have just a ton of speed. So I think having clean spin, and then for me lately, what I've been trying to do is having clean direct spin but not putting too much speed on it i usually will put a little harder in the headwind just so it has enough speed to get to the basket before the wind affects it but i try not to put so much pace on it that if i miss i've got like a crazy long putt back and also if i try to put too hard a lot of times i'm not going to have that clean release have you seen Macbeth's new approach in the wind with his putting no 
His putt is in the wind. So there's some science behind it, supposedly. And I haven't done the research or reading about it to know much about it, but he is doing more of a flutter putt in the wind. It, it was interesting because I, I would think that no matter okay. what, that's not going to be okay. There's there's something about the science behind it that it supposedly fights the wind the best. And I haven't, again, haven't done enough research. Is, is that in all most. wind or... I don't know. Okay, I just remember I've, them talking about it on the last when it was windy in a, a tournament. They just briefly talked about his approach. I, I remember I remember hearing, I don't know if it was Jomez or somebody talking about that now that you're saying it. I think it had something to do with catching the chains better. Okay. I per, I think that, that like when you get to Macbeth's level, that makes sense. For me, yeah. I can't put a wobbly putt into a stiff headwind yeah, there's no and way. know what it's <laughs> yeah. going to do. Yeah. I can't even put a wobbly putt. My wife does kind of a little wobbly putt sometimes, and I don't know how she's able to do it. But yeah. you can't—you don't even know how to make a wobble. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> that's a problem. I'm sure a lot of people yeah. would like to have. So let's talk tailwind because that's kind of the opposite. I think most people feel better about tailwind putts. But what do you do for a tailwind? Tailwind, I'm definitely trying to make sure I get it up because the tailwind's definitely going to knock it down. Even if you're getting it flat going to the basket, it just feels like the tailwind's just going to slap it. So definitely my goal is to get it up and know because even if I miss the basket, it's going to slap down just just past the basket. And so I'm not super, I feel like in a tailwind, I'm definitely not super worried about the putt. I'm not thinking about it as much. I'm just more concerned about making sure I get it up. Yeah, give it a chance. Just give it a chance, yeah. yeah. I totally agree. I think sometimes I'll try to get the nose down a bit in a tailwind if it's a ripping tailwind um, so that it, the disc doesn't get pushed down as much. But normally my approach is just give it a ton of height and hope that I just have it slam in, which is a fun putt when it works. Yeah, I don't think that I worry too much about tailwind putts. I totally agree. I think that the only thing that gets frustrating is when you don't give it enough height or you give it a little too much nose up and you don't even get to the basket. And so I just try to avoid that. Crosswind is fun to me, but it's also kind of challenging. Usually you end up with some kind of quartering wind, so you have to kind of combine these um, takes. But what do you do for crosswinds? You can take them both directions. Do you just try to keep it, um, just try to keep it flat and do your normal putt, or do you make any adjustment? I feel like I'm still kind of trying to figure that out for myself because I definitely do different things at different points, and I'm not sure if it's because I feel like the wind is stronger at times than other times. Uh, but there's definitely times to where if I'm putting from further out and I know the crosswind is pushing to the left. I'll put it out further to the right on a slight hyzer when knowing that the disc is going to be pushed into the basket. And so I'm definitely kind of playing that hyzer in the wind. And I've messed around with some Anheuser putts in the wind on a crosswind as well, just seeing what I can do with the disc. And so I feel like that's definitely one that I'm still trying to work on. I mean, keeping it flat is definitely something that can help out with some good spin on it and committing to the basket. But yeah, that's something that I'm still kind of starting to build concepts in my head for. So. Yeah, I feel the same way. I don't think it's one that I have a clear game plan for every time. And I think part of that's because at different distances and different wind speeds and quartering and stuff, you can't, it's hard to have a solution as an AM lined up for all those. I think one thing that I do that I think is helpful occasionally is I'll pick the angle that will slam the disc into the basket on a shorter putt rather than rise it. So if you have a left to right, I'll sometimes do a hyzer high and let that crosswind actually push the disc down into the basket 
Um, or if you've got it left to right or sorry, right to left, then I would do an Anheuser and let it push it into the basket. And I think that's just helped with some spit outs and other issues you sometimes have with the crosswind. If you put it high in the basket, a lot of times with the crosswind, it won't stay. If it's left to right, then the right side or right to left. I had, side. I had one of those at Snooks yesterday on hole one. I putted straight into the center chains on the left, like just maybe slightly to the left. And it just bounced straight out, and the crosswind just pushed it out to the left yep. side. Yep. So that's one of the reasons, not from a distance, because I don't have enough control to keep it on the ante or the or the or the hyzer, or feel good about that in the wind. Well, sometimes I'll use the hyzer on the crosswind, like you said, on, especially on a longer putt to kind of push it in the basket. But I do think I use that action to kind of have it get into the cage rather than in the top of the the chains. But other than that, I think the biggest you know thing for me is to not let get tripped up mentally by it and then to follow through confidently and to also just accept that, Hey, it's hard to put in the wind, you know, Frisbees fly on air and the air is moving in sometimes swirly ways. And so you, you can't always perfectly predict what the disc is going to do in the wind. And there has to be a certain sense of, I don't know, acceptance of the arbitrariness of life and uh, wind, I think when you're putting and also, confidence despite that yeah is there at any point that you switch from using your traditional putter you know you and i both put with a wizard um is there at any point in a tournament or practice round that you're switching to i know you i mean you're back to bagging your zone is there any point that you switch to any other disc with putting or are you always sticking with the wizard i think that so in our crazy windy first fruta tournament or first friend tournament when we played snooks i putted the zone a ton in the wind and i was rocking it and then i tried it again another super windy round and my misses were going really far from the basket because i was getting like a bit of skip and i think the disc was just faster and so i think in general my approach is to try to whenever possible put with a wizard even into the headwind and not change anything because I think that I'm, I just don't know that I want to have that mental exercise of switching discs. But if it's stupid ripping, I probably would put a zone or even a Firebird like disc, especially on a shorter putt. I think the other thing I do occasionally is on a shorter putt that I think I'm more likely to do, honestly, is to putt upside down. It's kind of, it's a strange feeling because it's a different putt, but I feel like it's much less affected by the wind and it's not going to rise so you can putt a little bit higher and so when i've got when there's just a stupid stupid wind and i've got a short putt i've been putting upside down a little bit and i feel really good about that out to about 15 feet Uh, but in a tournament i probably would only do that inside like the bullseye or 12 feet what about you yeah i i I like the upside down putt that uh you do it's one that i have tried to like begin to build a concept for but i'm not confident enough in it yet to actually pull it out in a tournament yeah and that's not something i would like recommend working on unless you live somewhere super windy because (laughs) i think it's like it's one of these things that's like a very random skill yeah but it's nice to have occasionally yeah for sure um there was two times at the delta tournament that i actually put it with my zone and i i for the life me i know i made one of them but i don't remember what happened to the other one how far out were you about 20 feet and it was ripping pretty good. I think it was typically in a headwind is when I would. Yeah, that's when I would do it I'd for sure. Switching it over to it. Um, but I think I actually began thinking about using the zone primarily because of that 
early on friends tournament when seeing you find success with the zone and i I, that friends tournament i had zero concept of what to do in the wind and i only had a forehand at the time so i was so frustrated with my round i think i was putting at one point with my pd2 and i still couldn't do anything (laughs) my pd2 would fly 50 feet from the basket when i would putt (laughs) and so i just i gave up (laughs) i think that that's the big thing for me is there's a certain wind speed at which my boosters are super beat up they just won't penetrate the wind well enough cleanly enough without a perfect putt to just get to the basket without me putting a ton of power on and so those are the points that i'd be more likely to put a zone but i'm also sometimes more likely to lay up and just say okay i'm just going to put this under the basket and move on in those cases because i still feel like i don't know i don't I don't need every head, like I don't need to make a 30 foot headwind putt to win most rounds. And if I just lay up, I'm more likely to take strokes when it's that windy. But I, I'm looking for in my bag, I don't want to add a disc for it, but I'm, I tried the burger a bit for it. We'll, t- we'll talk about the burger a little later for a headwind putt. And I actually felt like it, I like it at distance. I didn't like it close as much as I expected. I don't know why that is. I felt like I felt more confident with my wizards getting that spin. And I've tried the zone. I've got a base plastic zone in my bag. And I think that's probably what I'm going to mess around with for that. Just a little bit better ability to penetrate the wind. I haven't been playing in enough crazy brutal wind to need it. But I think I may mess with it a bit. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's part of putting in the wind is knowing when to lay up. Because I think they're, you're right. The 30 foot, or 30 foot headwind putts you're not going to have to make those necessarily in a tournament in order to keep up with everyone. And, yep. and pitching to the basket and taking, whether it's a par or a bogey, I think is a wiser choice than having to, you know, if you end up three putting just to get to the basket. Yeah. And I think a lot of this too is just, it's not, I think the zone may be a better approach, but I want to feel confident in it and not that I'm all moving away from what I know and what I trust. And so it's not really whether or not I think it's a better play. It's just what I practice. So I think for me, I would, I want to mess with it more. And part of that means I need to practice really like Westlake is a good one when it's really windy because you have some raised baskets on like mounds and stuff. And those are ones that will really punish you if you miss. And so you can get a sense of, okay, this penetrated the wind well, but when I missed, it went too far. Whatever, I feel like there's some good, and the wind usually is, you know, you're not protected at all. So I want to mess with it more. I think in general, though, I think I want to stick with what works out of the wind, in the wind, unless it's absolutely crazy. And then just try to adjust my my spin and my my commitment level to account for the fact that, yeah, it's a little tougher to get it in. For sure. Speaking of the Berg, you ready for the, what was that disc reveal? Let's do it. We've got the Castaplast Berg. It is a one speed. You heard that right. One glide, zero turn, and two fade approach disc, putter, whatever a one speed is. I bagged the Berg. I've sung some of its praises, so no one's going to be too surprised by my review. But David, you got to throw it for the first time, right? Yeah, I've actually been curious about asking you about throwing yours before, but I've never actually thrown it before. So it was fun to it was fun to do this one. What do you think of it? Dude, it's different. Yeah, it's different. It's a completely different feel in your hand. It has kind of I guess the center of it is more indented in, so it's got a pretty solid what dome around the edges, would you say? 
Yeah, it's got like a bit of a thumb track. Yeah. And then it's got like a bit of a, some of them more than others, but it raises back up in the center. Yep. Dude, pretty fun. I threw quite a bit on the backhand and the forehand. I liked it both with my backhand and forehand. I threw at multiple, I threw all, I think I was throwing three of yours in different plastics. Yeah, so Cast Plast Plastics, they had a recent change to some of their naming, but you threw the K3, which is their base plastic. It's just a beautiful base plastic. The K1 Soft, which used to be called K2, which is more of a gummy plastic, and the K1, which is still got some tack and some gumminess to it, but much stiffer than the K1 Soft. Yeah, definitely get it not having much glide, but also there's kind of a predictability about that. Um, You know it's just going to kind of fall in the direction that you throw it which is very nice. There are two holes that I really liked it on at Snooks. Hole five was a fun one for me yep. to throw this on. Yep. Kind of a tunnel shot down to the basket at like 220 feet, 230. It kind of has a ridge on the left of the basket. If you throw the backhand, it will fade out yep. oftentimes way away from the basket. You kind of want something that just stops. Yep. And then hole eight, the one that I like to avoid throwing the 200 footer to throw a massive forehand spike hyzer at it, did you this, throw the flick or the backhand? I threw the backhand with the Berg. And it is, I threw it on a slight Anheuser. And so it pushed to the right and it had that predictable finish to get back to the basket. And with one of them, I ended up parking it. And it was, so I, I love the disc, man. Very predictable. It's something that I could definitely see myself messing around with. The one thing that I envy the most, I think, about your ability to throw the Berg is your touch with it. With you do like kind of a little. A forehand like touch like kind of run at the basket sometimes or just a little like forehand touch approach that's one thing that i like i feel like i'm very confident in my forehand game but as far as slowing and controlling my speed that's something that i feel like you definitely have over me in the forehand game and i feel like the berg is something that you can play around with in that and i'm definitely jealous of that aspect of your game well i appreciate that man <laughs> i'm gonna give you guys a pro tip not that i'm a pro but if you want to really master forehand touch shots, don't use your wrist to control the speed. Use your fingers. If you generate the power from your throw with your fingers first and then let that guide your wrist and the rest of your body, you can have much better touch and control of the forehand. And I think that, honestly, between the Berg's low speed and low glide and that little adjustment in my brain to how I control it, I feel really confident that... If I throw that little baby, it's like a baby Annie, a little bit nose up, I won't be further than you know 15 feet from the basket, anywhere inside like 150 feet with an open shot. It's frustratingly consistent. Yeah, but it takes a little bit to dial in because it is a different disc. It is, you're used to the disc gliding a bit more, fading a bit more. I feel like the Berg, that two fade to me, I totally agree with the one speed, one glide, zero turn. I think the two fade, did you feel like the stiffer one, the K1, the bright blue one faded like a two fade because that was the most stable one. They were all fairly comparable. To be honest with you, it was a lot harder for me to figure out exactly the stabilities of them because of how windy it was when I was oh, playing. Oh, no, that makes there. sense. And so it definitely impacted how I was throwing it. No, I think that the, the two fade to me, maybe a fresh K1 will have that. I think a K3, once it's beat up, is honestly a, a one one zero zero, And then you get maybe a little bit more fade from the premium plastics. My first and only ace 
was a berg on Palisade 19, which is like a 220-foot hole. Oh, this is a great None story. None of us saw it. This is a great story. I feel like this story probably makes sense here. Why not? So my only ace. So I've been playing for over 10 years, and I'm not very good at acing. I don't know what it is. I'm decent at disc golf. I'm not very good at acing. We were playing a big group of us, probably like eight of us or so. Something we're like playing. That. And five of my closest friends when we got to the last hole went to go hunt pokemon playing pokemon go david was in that group we were doing a raid (laughs) (laughs) i don't know all the terminology but it seemed very important (laughs) and then micah went to go look for his disc and uh, ryan which we always give a hard time on the show about not playing disc golf anymore and i went and went to the hole and we were just kind of bored so we're like we're just going to go ahead and throw our drives and I looked at Ryan, I was like, wouldn't it be funny if I aced it while they were gone? And I went up and threw my berg on this beautiful backhand Annie over the water through this pretty tight double mando and slammed in the chains. And it was it was just perfect. Like I felt like I felt a little bit bad because I knew that David would probably feel bad for missing my one and only ace. But I also was just like this funny thing where I was like, wouldn't it be funny? And then I did it. And, and so I just left it in the basket. You didn't I, even tell us. They got yeah. up and threw their drives, and they're like, wait, there's a disc in the basket. <laughs> and I, I have this sense that David still is a little bit unsure of whether or not Ryan and I just <laughs> ran and put a disc in the basket just to mess with them for playing Pokemon Go. Like, I think he trusts me in life quite a bit, but I think there is this lingering doubt of like, <laughs> is it just a lie? Oh, it was pretty fantastic. I just remember that moment seeing the disc in the back basket and trying to figure out how it got there. And then when you said that, I was like, no, you're messing with us. Yeah, it was it was beautiful. And the, you have to throw it so high with the Berg to get it to drop in. But, yep. but yeah, I think that it's a fun disc. It's very different. I think that it's a disc that it takes some t- getting used to. But once you dial it in, I think it's a very useful disc because it has a ton of high-speed stability. If you throw it cleanly, you're not going to turn it over on the forehand or backhand very easily. Um, but also not a ton of fade. And whenever I can find a disc like that, especially with me for my game, I like to throw straight at the basket. A lot of times in order to get to the basket on a straight line, you got to throw an understable disc on a little bit of flip up. And the Berg is very unique because you can throw it pretty flat and have it basically just drop out of the sky rather than fade hard left or right. Yeah. Is we were talking about putting earlier. Is this something that you ever putt with? If it, I like it. I like it for very specific putts, like on a mound. Okay. I like it because if I miss, I'm usually going to stay on the mound. I can take like a high run run at it. And then I really like it if I'm throwing a really downhill putt that I need to drop. Okay. But I, I, it's once again, like, I think it's fun to putt with. I think it's useful to putt with. I think if I was, if I had all the time in the world, I may really work on it on my circle two putts just to practice like taking a 60 or 70 foot run and not having to worry about much of a comeback. But I just don't have enough time to, practice it and so in the round i'm usually going to go with what i'm comfortable with yeah i was actually messing around with putting them in the headwind going back to putting so what did you think of it um, in the headwind i actually felt like i had better control of it than my wizard in the headwind it it's strange because it's so different in terms of a feeling disc but it, it feels is. great to putt with yeah oh it does it definitely feels like it'll be more predictable in a headwind and that's why i wanted to try it yeah and so i feel like it definitely that gives you a whole nother variable to what you can do with the disc yeah, I some other little shots that I use it for. So I use it for like a lot of forehand approaches. I talked about my baby Annie. I also like it for big Annies 
to get around stuff. I feel like it's very useful for that. David's seen some of those shots I think I've annoyed him with, which is you think there's no way to get to it because you're having to lean out or be on your knee and and reach way over and you need the disc to do the opposite spin or the opposite that the spin wants it to do. So for my forehand, that would be I need it to finish left. And I feel like it does a really good job of that. And I think the other thing I like it for is spike hyzers. Like you have to get over a little tree or a you know, big bush or something or over a branch and you don't want it to go far or skip. Um, I feel like it's, I really like that backhand especially. And then it's also a really fun roller. It, you can get it to carry straight for a really long time. I do it a lot of times just for fun on holes and I'll park like 250 foot holes, 220 foot holes regularly with the Berg just because it's super straight roller and then it doesn't have a big, you know, when you throw a driver or something on the roller, a lot of times once it gets on edge or so once it starts leaning over, it will move really far left or right and the Berg pretty much just rolls straight and then falls over. So I think it's a super useful disc. I, I, I used to struggle with whether or not I should bag a bird because I do think like a wizard does a lot of similar things on a backhand. It's a little bit more glidey, but it's honestly like it, the feel is very different, but I, I think I was like, Oh, I can throw wizards backhand just as well as I can throw the Berg. And is it worth having this slot in my bag? Cause it's a weird slot. It's a one speed approach disc. But now that I've got it dialed in, I feel like my game maybe partially because I've built my game around it, but it also feels now like I'm inseparable from it. Like if I couldn't throw a Berg, we talked about it. If I had to pick between the Crave and the Berg, I'd probably pick the Berg. I think that was like episode five or six or something, but I don't know. I it's, it's just such an interesting disc. And there's a lot of, I think that it's a disc that's gotten a lot of hype lately and a lot of hate lately. And that it's a polarizing disc. But if you just take all of that aside and you just say, does it feel really good in the hand? Yeah, it's weird, but it feels really good in the hand to me. What do you think? Yeah, I do think it feels very good in the hand. But yes, it's different feeling than most of the discs you've put in your hand. Yeah, does it fly well? Yeah, it flies well. It just flies different. It's it's not going to go that far. Like I think max max with a Berg, I'll probably throw it. Like if I'm really under 200 is on a full like backhand run up is usually I may push it to like 225. I can get maybe a little more than that on an Annie, but... I'm usually going to use it under 200 feet. So it, it is a unique slot and a unique disc, but I think it's a good disc. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. You want to give it a rating? Yeah. First, I, our rating system. I always forget. David and I will give it a score, one to five. Some are scores to 10. One, it's just not that great of a disc. Two, it's a okay disc, but there's better options out there. Three, it's a good disc, but it doesn't stand out. Four is, it's fantastic but it's not making my bag. And five is it's going in the bag. So David, what's your rating? I'm going to go 4.5, man, man, it's, you're up there. Yeah. You, I, I heard it, nothing from you on the Berg. So I kind of figured you weren't really a fan. No, it's actually, so uh, I talk about commitment with my discs. This is one thing. If I had to pull a disc out of my bag, it's probably the Luna that would end up coming out. Um, and the reason why is the, the Berg, I think, if I can really learn that touch shot that you have with your forehand with it, and I think it would take a lot of time and energy putting into it, but I think I could throw it just as well. I use my Luna for my throwing putter. I could throw it just as well as I throw my Luna, if not maybe slightly better. And I also can use it on a flick a little bit as a touch flick. It's not just a one-side disc. Yes, it's not just a one-side disc. And so I feel like it opens up another possibility in my game 
that I could learn. And we're talking about those having different shots that Stokely was talking about. I think it opens up possibility for me. And that's the reason why it makes it enticing. But yeah, it's not something that's going in my bag right now, but it's something that I, I, could, I could see myself in the future considering. I think it's worth trying out. I just think it's, you know, there's going to be this list of discs that is going to grow for you, which is going to be like, okay, all these discs felt really good, but I didn't really want to work on them tournament season. And so then there's going to be some opportunities to mess with them. I obviously, I'm going to give it a five. I love the Berg. I think I bought it initially. There's a lot of hype from like the, the cast of Plast crazies way. You know, I, I think I've been throwing them for two years now. Even back then there was a lot of hype for it. And I think it was kind of an on again, off again relationship at first where I was like, oh, I get all these good shots with it. It took me a little while to dial in, but now that it's dialed in, I, I can't imagine not having it. And you should check one out. I personally would recommend the base plastic K3 to start. It feels great. And it's, I think it's the most Berg uh, that a Berg is in terms of both the high speed and low speed stability, meaning it's very stable through the flight, but it's not overstable and it just dies out. I love the K1 soft and the K1 as well, but the K3 to me is what I'm bagging most days and I love it. Once it gets beat up a little bit, it gets maybe a little less high speed stability, but I like it. And you can get, Scott Stokely has his tour series K3 Bergs at scottstokely.com. They get a beautiful stamp. They feel great. They're just typical K3 Bergs, but with a cool stamp. And you can support Scott on his tour you could just go to scottstokely.com and find the Berg. He's got some harps and some other discs out there as well. Or, or maybe in addition, you can win this one. We're going to give away a Scott Stokely Berg on our Instagram page. So just look when this episode drops for the episode post. Anything else with the Berg? No, it's a great disc. Sweet. Well, we have uh, our AMS helping AMS. This week we have Christopher and just want to play his recommendation. Hey, David and Josiah. It's Christopher. Loving the podcast. Keep rocking it out. I wanted to share one of my tips that I've gathered from various pros in their chats on YouTube or podcasts, plus a little spin for myself that I think can really help someone in a tournament setting or casually playing on course blind or one they have played weekly. And that is, when do you start thinking about your putt? And the best answer to that to me is after your approach shot. So, Say you do your approach shot, you're 15, 20 feet left of the pin. Uh, That is when you start gathering hints of what you need to do to sink the putt. Such as, do you know if it's a slight uphill, downhill, or is it flat? Will you need to putt in a different position there, used to like having to switch to straddle? Or is there a low ceiling? Uh, By casually answering these questions to yourself before it's your turn to putt, you can have a clearer and more precise way to just step up sink it in obviously if it's a course that you're playing blind perhaps you won't know if there's a low ceiling or you won't know that where your lie is you actually have to a one foot uphill putt but you can start gathering oh what's the wind today um see if there are trees around and start just piecing it together a little bit and you might have a little bit of surprise thinking you might have skipped a little bit further but at least you've done possibly half the thinking of what you need to do to have the best angle to uh, get it in and uh, hopefully be scoring some birdies because us AMs need as many as we can get. Well, thank you guys for the opportunity to 
share some tips and uh, have a great podcast. Hey, thanks, Christopher, for sending that in. If you want to be featured on the podcast, just send in your recording to thegrind.dg at gmail.com. We can use all the help we can get. David, what did you think of that? I liked it. I think the less that you have to think about when you're approaching the putting green, the better, because you want to go up there without um, having as much to think about and just trying to cash your putt. And I love... I mean, you have so much time when you're waiting for everybody to get their shots done, when you're walking to the basket. If you have your game plan, your basic ideas in mind, whatever the wind is, or if you're going to be behind a bush, whatever it might be, if you have all those concepts built in of how you're going to approach the shot, um, going into it, putting uphill, whatever it might be, it's way less to think about as you're actually stepping up to the putt. And I think that's setting yourself up for success. You can take that approach across disc golf. And I love that he shared this because I think the more that we can simplify the game and think ahead so we're not having to think so much in the moment, it simplifies the game for us as amateurs. Yeah, and I think a lot of times if you don't take this approach, which I am I am guilty of this all the time, you feel rushed in your putt because you took a while to figure out what you're going to do. And so then you may ignore your pre-shot routine or you may adjust it in some way that actually throws off your just, hey, I'm just going to put the disc in the basket. So I like this idea of putting some parentheses around when do you think about your putt? Well, initially, you're going to think about it once you have a putt, to whatever that is, upshot or drive. Hey, I know I've got a putt. I usually add about five to 10 feet from when I th- how far I think I have to putt. So I'm not disappointed. So if I think I've got a 15-footer, I'm like, oh, yeah, 25 to 30-footer, something like that, in order to try to just mentally trick myself. If I walk up and it's a 15-footer, I feel more confident. But then I like this idea of, okay, I'm probably going to have to straddle out. I'm going to have to take a knee. I'm going to have a normal-ish putt, but it's going to be a bit of a crosswind or headwind, et cetera, and kind of taking a moment to think through that putt, all the potential of it, and then stopping thinking about it until you're up there. And then you're only having to make an adjustment from what you already thought about, if not, if anything. Oh, it's, it's a 15-footer, not a 25-footer. Or, oh, I don't actually need to straddle or actually need to do a knee putt or whatever that is. I think that will speed up your decision-making on the green. And it will also, I think, make you feel more relaxed or confident. So I'm going to try to apply this because I think this is super helpful. Yeah, I like that Christopher brought in a mental component to the game because I think so much we get so fixated on. And we've talked about mental components of the game often on the podcast, but as an amateur, it's so easy to get caught up in what we can do physically uh, that we forget that a lot of our mistakes are made in the mental side of the game. And I think if we can uh, be ahead of the game mentally, then it's, again, going to make the game a lot more simple for ourselves that we're just letting the mechanics kind of do the work. Yeah, and I think so much of disc golf is choosing when you focus and when you think. And I think trying not to do both those things at the same time. So, hey, this drive is coming up. I need to throw a hyzer flip down this tight tunnel. I want to pick this disc based on this wind. If you're doing that on the tee pad or once somebody's like, hey, you're throwing, get up there and throw, man, we're waiting on you. Whatever it is, like, same thing with a putt. I feel like a lot of times that does, that does influence the actual performance of the shot. And I'd say also, like, if you're trying to focus all the time during the round, you're going to be worn out. So being able to selectively strategize and selectively focus on the actual execution of the shot, I feel like is huge. And having some kind of system by which you do that, I think is going to be helpful. And so I definitely want to apply this. And I think also I'm going to try to apply it 
in other areas as well. But putting, I think, is an easy way to start for sure. Yeah, for sure. That's it for this episode. Be sure to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We haven't gotten one in a while, so we'd love to get your feedback, and that helps people find the show. If you want to get a bonus podcast every week, become a patron at patreon.com slash thegrinddg. And as always, whether it's coffee or disc golf, don't forget to enjoy the grind.